And greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. James White along with you. Uh, of course, we have uh, Prescott's most famous Frenchman running all of the um, technical stuff uh, just across the room, making faces, doing other things to cause problems. But you all never see that, and so you believe all the stuff about how I'm mean and stuff like that. That's okay. It, it's just part of, the, part of the life I have to live. Today, we are going to continue... Um, uh, last week's discussion of Mormonism. I've got one little brief thing to do at the beginning. Um, but then I wanted to mention, we're going to be doing three programs this week. Well, I'm going to be doing any more than that, but three dividing lines. Uh, I have just really majorly overcommitted myself right before I'm heading out uh, once again. I'm not sure how I did this, but um, that's January. I guess that's sort of how it worked out. Anyway, um, Tomorrow, we've got Radio Free Geneva, and I am going to be responding to some material by Dr. Allen in the new big... I guess they're really into doing big books. You, it could have been much smaller. It could have been typeset. It's fairly... It's nice large print, so for us older folks, it's very nice. But I get the feeling it's meant to you know, say something about, we're big. Um, I, I will try to remember. I, I had actually looked it up, and maybe, maybe I did tweet it. I don't remember, but I I will try to post. Try to remember to post. I will probably forget um, the URL to. I'm not sure what we did, but I, I think we we took a section of the dividing line and posted it separately from regular dividing line. About I don't know two years ago. Um. When uh, Dr. Allen's book on the Extend the Atonement came out, um, there were two books that I had on my uh, on the desk when I was responding to it. And we, Dr. Allen had written an article in response to me on Romans 8. We looked at all the published material, the article, the books. We went through everything, and we demonstrated that the position being presented by the provisionists um, is an eisegetical one. He had tried to go into various commentaries. We, we, we went to all the commentaries. We went, we, we went deep in providing a response. Well, here's this new book, Calvinism, a Biblical and Theological Critique, edited by David Allen and Stephen Lemke. There isn't anything really new in it. It's it's just the provisionist thing uh, going on there. Um, but once again, the issue of Romans 8, uh, there is a, a brief section on it. And so we're going to respond to that and demonstrate, yet once again, one side can do exegesis and present their theology from the page of Scripture. The other side, the best they can do is go, nope, doesn't mean that. Well, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that. But what does it mean? And we never... We've seen this over and over again with Leighton Flowers, with David Allen. They'll say it can't mean that, um, but they can't give you a positive exegetical presentation. And that's why provisionism will always um, be, well, what it is right now. So we'll do Radio Free Geneva on that. Um, and we will throw in there um, the Frank Turek video with Leighton Flowers, where Frank basically says, I, I just think a lot of... You know, these Calvinists are our brothers. I just don't think they've really thought through what they believe. <laughs> and he holds up 
Chosen but free uh, by Norman Geisler. So it's sort of like, um, all right, we'll comment briefly on that. And then on Thursday in a morning, morning for us program, it'll be early afternoon for people on the East Coast, I guess. Um, I want to talk about Andy Stanley's new unhitching from the New Testament. Because <laughs> once you, you know, once you unhitch from the old, eventually you're probably going to unhitch from the new too. And um, that's that's what he's done. And uh, so we will we will take a look at that and and respond to that um, Thursday as uh, as well. And then on uh, Friday morning, I'm recording a sort of s dialogue with um, with Doug Wilson uh, that will probably be available the week after that. And uh, like I said, we've got a, a we'll have a debate going on that I think will be live streamed a week uh, from this coming Friday. Yes, a week from this coming Friday. Uh, Oscar Dunlap, uh, a deacon at our church, Gay Brench from up in Moscow, is coming down. I'm moderating. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. Um, it should be interesting. <laughs> Gabe will never be the same. Let's just put it that way. Um, <clears throat> that'll be a week from Friday, and then don't forget. Um, coming up on my trips, I've got uh, two two debates, and uh, both I've, I've heard the second one's gonna be live streamed as well. I'm not sure about that. I haven't verified that, but they both both may be available in that way. Um, one of them, of course, is there in Houston, where we had the same location, uh, Lutheran Church there in Houston, where we had the debate on Molinism last year, or the year before last, one of the two. Um, and uh, yeah, it was last year, early last year. And um, then there's going to be a debate on the 24th of February. I hope to be in attendance uh, up in Salt Lake City. Um, and it's uh, going to be uh, Zach Lautenschlager, who is a member of the OPC Church up there in um, in Salt Lake City, um, and my son-in-law, um, Eric something, uh, Jaeger, yeah, yeah, Eric. I just got to try to remember these things. Um, uh, what's his name? Yeah, you know, the guy married my daughter, and uh, yeah, um, and... Um, they're going to be debating uh, who is in the new covenant. So it's it's not specifically on baptism, but it it is, but it's on a more basic issue uh, related to that subject, and uh, that will be on the twenty fourth in Salt Lake City. I don't know whether I'll be able to get there or not for the simple reason that I will be hot footing it across the United States from uh, Tennessee with my fifth wheel. And hence, what what will determine whether I can be in Salt Lake City or not? The weather. <laughs> um, if there is a you know big old blizzard snowstorm uh, uh, blowing through, uh, it would not be wise to turn north. Uh, it would be much wiser for me to cancel all my reservations and head south, young man, uh, to try to get back. So uh, I'm certainly hoping to be there, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll see what's going to happen there. So lots of stuff. Lots and lots and lots of stuff going on. So we want to get back to Mormonism, but first, I saw this, bad preacher clips, bad sermons. Is that what it is? Is that bad sermons? I think this was bad sermons, actually. Um, bad something <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, these, these poor guys, you know, I, I often say, I listen to the heretics, you don't have to, but they listen to the really bad fundamentalists. Really? 
Well, okay, it's both actually. So bad sermons is the actual bad act, sermons. Uh huh. Does bad preacher clips? Bad preacher clips. So okay. Okay. There you go. Um. Um. Uh, Rich and I were both commenting on the fact that Sam Gipp still looks like Sam Gipp did in in uh, 1995 on the John Ankerberg show. Actually, his hair was dark back then, so uh, there there has been some change. But uh, Rich is fairly certain that's the same suit and tie he was wearing in 1995, um, uh, which would be great if he can wear the same suit. That's that's super. Anyway, um, for those of you who haven't. For those of you who aren't algo, um, yeah, for those of you who aren't algo, uh, Sam Gipp is a King James onlyist. He was one of the four people that we took on, uh, or was it three people? Yeah, maybe th- only three people, um, that we took on on the John Ankerberg show in 1995, which I think is available on YouTube, I think. Yeah, anyway. Um, and he's the one that sent me the, uh, the coloring book and crayons, and he had done a little, a fairly well-made little series promoting King James Onlyism, I don't know, about five, six years ago, and I responded to each episode and demonstrated why their arguments, as normal, are completely vacuous and circular and incoherent and all those types of things. It's a familiar church here. Uh, you've, you've seen this background before. Uh, the uh, the the guy that uh, the the I think the Korean guy who just goes crazy nuts. There's a video. It's the camera is farther over to this side, um, but that's where he was doing the Gail Ripplinger wackadoodle stuff and came running up to the camera and went blah, 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 and it's, it's just really weird. So this is a well-known uh, haven of King James only wackoism uh, and. Uh, so this this clip was was posted, and I just I wanted to play it just so we we can get a, a sense of just how weird uh, King James onlyism uh, can become, how the cultic type of King James onlyism, and and here you have a good example of it. So let's uh, let's listen to old Sam Gipp here, and um, then respond to what he has to say. And 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 um, here's what I say, guys. In this, well, how do you know which one to choose? You don't have to choose. Remember this statement, all question of proper translation ended in 1611. Amen. In other words, if there are six ways it can be translated, 25 ways it can be translated, it doesn't matter. All question proper translation ended in 1611. Amen. So uh, I, I, was, uh, I was talking to Daniel last night uh, about this, and... Um, I was teaching in a Bible conference uh, probably about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And, and this pastor, who was a good man, Bible believer, but he would use a Greek. And he came up to me after I got done teaching. And I don't, I don't call him any names, you know. Um, and he said, um, and this was his description. He said, when the King James translators came to any word, guys, any word, doesn't matter, in a fair or anything else. He said, when they came to a word and uh, they had a crisis. They had maybe six, seven ways it could be translated. Their crisis was, which one do we put down? And he said, when they put a word down, when they made that decision, they ended that crisis. I said, well, he said, when I go back to the Greek, I reopen that crisis, don't I? Well, I'd never heard described that way. I said, yeah. 
And I'm telling you, I never seen a man get more solemn in my life. He said, I will never do it again. Wow. Pretty good. I will never do it again. I will never do it again, he said. Now, what I want you to understand, what he just said was that every single issue of translation, every single choice of translation was dealt with and the answers given to us in 1611 when the, with the publication of the King James Version of the Bible. There is, this is your uh, standard uh, second inspiration uh, perspective. The King James is inspired. It's perfect in and of itself. And it was a, it was a new inspiration. It was, um, that's why they, they can't show you the King James prior to 1611 uh, it was um, it was a new inspiration that that takes place because this is saying there can be no improvement. Now everyone needs to understand a couple of things. First of all, every single one of the King James translators would laugh, either laugh with hilarity, or would agree to the burning <laughs> or the drowning of Sam Gipp um, uh, as a as a obviously heretical nutcase Anabaptist. Um, Every single one of them would, would just go, you have got to be kidding us. Not, not, no King James translator believed anything like this. They never expressed anything near it. And in fact, they expressed the exact opposite of it. It is very plain from their own writings that they recognized that, well, the, the very fact that they provided marginal translations demonstrates that this whole thing, well, it was... <laughs> There's no reason to read the Greek. You just got to look at what the King James did. The King James translators go, we put the alternate readings in the margin, you moron. What are you, <laughs> what are you talking about? It is astonishingly absurd to believe this kind of stuff. Uh, it is ahistorical, irrational, and yet these guys are still running around. You know, it's been, we're coming up on 30 years. Uh, since, uh, uh, yeah, it's it, it, 28 years uh, ago was when we did the, the John Ankerberg show and just demonstrated over and over and over and over and over again how utterly incoherent this, this whole movement is, but it's, they're still out there peddling their wares and selling their books and, and, and doing stuff like that. The idea that, well... You know, there's six different ways to translate this Greek word, and there's no reason to even bother learning that language any longer because we have the 1611. Um, that, of course, was the exact argument in regards to the Vulgate. That was the exact argument in regards to the Greek Septuagint. Um, that these men would never accept those arguments, but then they turn around and make them again. King James-onlyism is utterly ahistorical. It, it because the fact that it uses one set of standards for the King James and another set of standards for everything else, they don't have to worry about whether their, their assertions make mincemeat out of history uh, or mean that there were all sorts of other uh, versions of the Bible that we should still be using today that, that we don't, uh, because you could make much better arguments for them. You could make a much better argument for the Vulgate than you can for the King James. 1,100 stinking years. That's a long time to be the standard, right? Uh, King James, not, not nearly that long. Um, they're, they're so disconnected from history. Or when they try to pretend to do something with history, they, they, they just destroy it so badly and use such horrific standards of historiography. It's just, 
unbelievable uh, the things that they they do. But you just need to need to hear what's being said there. Here's a here's a pastor who's learned Greek. I'll never do that again. Now I don't know if that conversation ever took place. You know, a lot of these sermon illustrations. Mm. Um, but the reality is. Uh, let me just give you one example, and I was, I was going to pull it up, but I, I felt it was more important to have this stuff ready for Mormonism than just this illustration. But, uh, and I've, I've talked about this many times before. I remember many, 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 many moons ago, uh, and I don't hear a certain thing running in the background, am I right? Um, and uh, uh, we had a very, very, very small office, um, and uh, over on 16th Street, South Camelback, and uh, I don't know how I got hold of it or somebody sent it to me, but I started uh, subscribing to Dennis McKenzie's Biblical Errancy. McKenzie was, he's dead now, but so he's not an atheist anymore, but he was an atheist then, and uh, he would mimeograph, those of you who don't remember the smell of mimeographed copies, um, you were not my age in a, in a Baptist church. Um, well, actually, for some reason, his was brown. I'm not sure why his was different color, but yeah, normally it was purple-colored ink stuff. Anyway, uh, he would put out three pages back, both sides, so a total of six pages. Uh, each month, he would put out a newsletter with errors in the Bible, biblical errancy. And I remember one of the um, key examples that I used in refuting him and we had him on the program. We actually got him on the dividing line in an atheism series we did, again, sometime in the mid to late 1980s. Um, and his assertion was, he took a section from Matthew, he took a verse from Matthew, where Jesus says, you shall not kill. Um, and then he has a section from Paul, and it's, you shall not murder. Now, it could have been reversed, but I think, I think it was kill in Matthew, murder in Paul. And he's quoting from the King James Version of the Bible. The, the problem is, when you go to the original language, it's oof on in both places. The exact same Greek. The King James translated it differently. In one place, murder, one place, kill. Now, murder and kill are not necessarily synonymous. They're, they have different semantic domains. They overlap at some point, but they, they do have different semantic domains. And so it's, it's, it's easy, once you understand Bible translation, the history of the Bible, and when you understand the history of the King James Version of the Bible itself. Um, the committee that translated the Gospels is not the committee that translated Paul. So you had multiple uh, committees that had different responsibilities, and there wasn't you know, today, you may have similar things to that, but then you'll have a, a final committee at the end that will try to catch stuff like this, where you've got the identical Greek phrase being translated in different ways, and there's no reason in the context that that to be the case. And so it was just simply something that King James translators and editors missed, that they would render it in two different ways when there's nothing in the context to indicate why you're, why you're doing that. And so you know, I could easily respond to people like Sam Gibbon. Well, here, here's a guy. That guy might have died and gone to hell because of the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, you know, 
this this kind of of stuff. Uh, they're they're right. Their books are filled with it. And um, Sam Gipp uh, may send coloring books and crayons to uh, to other people as he likes to do. But I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you, it's his position uh, that is best written in crayon uh, because it does not have any lasting staying power to it at all. Now, having uh, looked at that, let's get to the important stuff because we uh, discussed on the program uh, last time uh, Mormonism. And what happened was Rich and I started reminiscing. And um, we haven't gotten the rocking chairs yet, though I'm, I'm pretty close to bringing a couple of those in and, and setting them up up here. And Rich and I can put some nice comfy pillows on them and, and uh, just start reminiscing about well, it, it, it's it's 2023. It's 40 years for Alpha and Omega Ministries. We can we can sit around and reminisce about um, <laughs> about uh, a bunch of guys pushing a gold Volks uh, 74 Sun Beetle around the parking lot of Motel Six in downtown Salt Lake City to get it to try to get started because the starter went out, um, and then I drove it. All the way to Northern California without ever stopping it. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Uh, everybody's all y'all. Y'all just do this for the money. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and um, uh, that was when I went up to Golden Gate, and I was uh, I was looking at going to Golden Gate, and uh, that's also the same weekend that Kelly and I realized that uh, I went. Uh oh, I. Th- think you're pregnant. <laughs> She's like, what? Uh, and they had just, believe me, this is how long ago it was. They had just come out with pregnancy tests. They, back, in, back, back in the olden, olden days, you had to go to a doctor. What was the old phrase they used to do? Did the rabbit die? Yeah. Something like that. I think it was, I was, you know, there was, had something to do with a rabbit. I have no idea what, what, what that was all about. But uh, they, they had just come out with pregnancy tests that you could buy at a, at a drugstore. And this would have been 85. Um, yeah, 85, late 85, uh, probably in October. And um, uh, got that pregnancy test, and yep, that's why I didn't end up at Golden Gate. Uh, was, uh, there, came, there came Josh. So uh, anyway, uh, there, that, that was a long, 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 long time ago. We started telling all those stories. But now we need to get to what I promised to do, and that is to look at some of the biblical texts I mentioned to you last time. Um, I still don't hear anything going on. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. Uh, you talk, and I'll be, you'll be right back. Okay, I'll, I'll try to remember to say something while you're gone. Um, <laughs> anyway, trying to get the fan going uh, up above. The, we got These lights start getting you just a tad bit on the toasty side uh, fairly quickly, and for some reason the, um, uh, our, our normal way of getting things going isn't working. I mentioned to you last time there is something called the 100-verse memorization system on our website um, that you can uh, read and download for yourself. It'll give you far more verses than I have time to deal with here. And the important part is, just like Letters to a Mormon Elder, it gives you the context. that, That is so massively important. I don't care what verse we're looking at. When you, you know, people ask me, they'll they'll go. How is it that when you're out in Mesa or you're out in Salt Lake City, you're having these conversations and you seem to be in control of the conversation? 
You seem to direct it where you want to go. You, people don't. The rest of us struggle to keep the conversation going the same direction. And part of it, honestly, is A, knowing what they believe better than they know it really, really does help. But mainly, it's when you, when you do present biblical texts, you are presenting them within a context. You're saying, now, you know, um, if I was talking with a Jehovah's Witness uh, and I would... I wanted to go to John chapter 17. I wanted to deal with verses 3 through 5. When you put it in the context, you know, we're, we're looking at our, our Lord's high priestly prayer. And uh, this is really the Lord's prayer. And this is, this is right at the end. You know, we, we, had, we had his public ministry ends in, in chapter 12. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 have been his private ministry to the disciples. And now right at the end, you have this tremendous interaction between the Father and the Son. By providing that, context, um, you, you really uh, you cause people to hesitate to interrupt and throw other things in because they weren't aware of what you're currently saying. Or they are able to determine by the way you're saying it that this isn't just something that you've memorized off of a card someplace, that what you're telling them from John chapter 17 actually has meaning to you and you, you're familiar with it in its context and things like that. So the Hunterverse Memorization System, I, I highly recommend it to you. Look it up at aomin.org and grab that. Then, uh, in speaking with Mormons, you're going to be looking especially at the trial of the false gods in Isaiah 40 through 48. Now, um, people who've gone to BYU, uh, if you've ever watched the uh, debate, that well, wasn't really a debate, but the discussion that took place on Apologia Radio about, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, with a uh, young, non-representative uh, Mormon fellow, Kwaku uh, was his name, uh, I think he's still sort of Mormon. Uh, he's gone off into some wild stuff. There's no ways about it. But uh, that would give you a good idea of what people are going to get. They go to BYU. Oh, th- th- this was standard language back then. All the different gods said that they're the only true gods and you know, all the rest of this kind of stuff. And all meant to uh, try to, in some way, shape, or form, rescue the horrifically polytheistic system of Mormonism. Because when you understand what Mormonism, what Mormonism developed into, now it, it, it is true that there was a period of development after Joseph Smith. There had to be. Uh, if, I've said many times, if Joseph Smith had not been murdered in a Carthage jail in 1844, if he had been given only two more years, there'd be no Mormonism today. There would be no Mormon church today. Why? His beliefs were changing so fast, so radically, that no one would have been able to make heads or tails out of him in just two more years. Um, I really, really, really do believe that. I believe that the men who murdered, and he was murdered. He, well, yeah, he was shooting back, but he still was murdered. He was in a jail cell. It's not exactly a fair fight. But he did shoot back. And 
uh, he, he, at that point in time, he had moved from an ignorant Trinitarian monotheism with shades of modalism, like many Christians today have, uh, into a radical polytheism. And that's why you have such a difference between the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenant and the Pearl Great Price. This is evolution taking place during Joseph Smith's own lifetime. And if that evolution had, had continued, uh, there, would, there would be no Mormonism. So what Mormon apologists have to do today is they have to try to find some mechanism of defending Joseph Smith, or like some Mormons, some Mormons are just adopting a view of prophethood now that is so wildly wacky. For some reason, it's still not running. Uh, it stopped. Um, the fan's not on. Um, and so uh, they will try to try to get around these texts by saying, well, yeah, you know, but Isaiah didn't, you know, the, these, these passages in Isaiah weren't meant to be taken uh, to the extreme you're taking them and things like that. But let's look at just a few. We only have so much time uh, today. Let's look at just a few that you'd want to be looking at. Like I said, what I would... What I would do, what I would highly recommend to you, um, is to just read through Isaiah 40 through 48. Uh, there's a paper on the website uh, titled um, Doctrine of God in Isaiah 40 through 48, I think is what it's called. And uh, that's, again, a seminary paper from long, long ago. And just see the repetitiveness of the fact that God is bringing the idols into the court of law. And he's saying, he's putting them on trial. And that's why he can say, for example, in Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh to Israel. You are my witnesses. So he calls Israel as a witness that he is the only true God. And by bringing accusation against them, by bringing accusation against them, What's fascinating about this section is it reveals to us certain aspects of God's character and being through the negation of the false gods. So, so one of the constant challenges is tell us what's going to happen in the future. Tell us what's going to happen in the future. The idols can't do that. They don't know the future because they are not the, the creator who made all things. Not only that, they can't speak either. So that's, that's sort of a problem as well. But tell us what happened in the future. Tell us what happened in the past and why it happened. Do something. What you find in Isaiah 40 to 48, well, for example, Isaiah 40, 21 uh, happens to be on the screen right now. So uh, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Now, that's interesting. There you have a, an assertion that what the author is going to be talking about here is revealed um, in creation from the foundations of the earth. It is he who inhabits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to inhabit. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth utterly formless. 
Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their hosts by number, calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his vigor and of the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And so then you have these assertions being made about God's grandeur, and then it's applied, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and the justice due me passes by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary tired. His understanding is unsearchable. So there, there, is, there is application, direct application being made. And that is Israel saying, well, we're not going to be punished for our sins. But do you not know that the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? Now, the, the, the Mormon commitment to the King James is not nearly as strong as it once was. Uh, it's still the default. But I'm encountering more and more Mormons that are using other translations. And, fascinatingly, this is one of my great disappointments about early 2020, is we were supposed to have a conversation with a, a Mormon scholar that has done his own translation of the New Testament. And it's a very good translation of the New Testament. But he's not using the same textual basis as the King James. That raises all sorts of fascinating questions. It really, really does. And I'd still like to have that conversation someday. Um, but I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible here. And so if you're following along in the NIV, NASB, New King James, whatever, I kept saying Yahweh, and you're seeing Lord, but the O and the R and the D are in capital forms. They're smaller font, but capital form. Um, the, uh, the Mormons do tend to use the Old English phrase Jehovah of these places. My recollection, oh, remember this, quad. Um, my recollection is that in the Bible dictionary, uh, let me see, on page, boy, this would be interesting if I actually remember this, 666. <laughs> Um, 667, pretty close, 667. The name uh, Jehovah appears in the, uh, in the material, and it says, The covenant or proper name of the God of Israel, it denotes the unchangeable one, the eternal I am. The original pronunciation of this name has possibly been lost, as the Jews in reading never mentioned it, but substituted one of the other names of God, usually Adonai. Probably it was pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh. In the KJV, the Jewish custom has been followed, and the name is generally denoted by Lord or God, printed in small capitals. So why do I mention this to you? Um, well, then it goes on to say, Jehovah is the premortal Jesus Christ who came to earth being born of Mary. Well, the identification of Jehovah and Jesus is a later development in Mormon theology. But the reason I mention that is it is important to be able to recognize when the name Yahweh or Jehovah is being used. So you need to know that L-O-R-D 
and or if it's in G-O-D in all capital, that's normally Lord God, uh, Yahweh Elohim. And their own Bible will substantiate your explanation of that. So if someone's going, well, I'm not sure that's really what, what, what's there, you can take them. Just remember page 666 and go one page over. <laughs> that's why I remembered it. Was, uh, that, that's, that's how it was. Uh, which would also work if it was on page 617, if you know about the textual variant, Romans 13, 18, but we won't get into that right now. Um, so, so anyway, uh, just, just, you know, it's, it's always helpful to use their material. If they're standing there with a quad and you can turn to page 667 and show them the name Jehovah and how that's found and, and hence be able to show them in, in texts like Deuteronomy 435, that, uh, uh, Jehovah, he is Elohim. There is no God besides him. In Mormon theology, as it developed later, this wasn't Joseph Smith's view. But it is officially defined by the church, I think, in, was that 1901 was the first presidency statement? Was it 1911? I think it was 1901. But I'm not sure. Um, I need to look that, that up again. There was a statement by the first presidency, 1901, I think, uh, where they specifically laid out what, you just, what I just read to you there, and that is Jehovah is the pre-mortal Jesus. Uh, Joseph Smith hadn't done that. Joseph Smith... Uh, had not made that distinction, but it, it's a distinction that develops in Mormonism at a later point. And you will run into a lot of Mormons that don't even know that. That's why being able to open their own Bible and show that to them might be of, of assistance. Point being, as I have been reading here, it says, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the, of, of, of the earth. King James is going to say, uh, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, because they don't translate the Tetragrammaton. They just follow the Jewish custom uh, and, in essence, hide the divine name. So it's important to recognize that because in Mormonism, especially if you're talking to a temple Mormon, if they've been through the temple, they have watched as in the presentations, if in Salt Lake City, which is, of course, closed right now because the place almost fell over during the earthquake a number of years ago, um, Actors would act this out, and in all the rest of the temples, it's done on video. Um, uh, Elohim and Jehovah are separate and distinct physical individuals. Elohim's the father, Jehovah is the son. Elohim sends Jehovah and Michael down to organize the earth. So you see three beings, you three, see three physical personages, and one sends the other two down. Uh, that's, a, that's a major, major problem in Isaiah. And why is that a major problem in Isaiah? Well, for some reason. Oh, okay, there it is. Well, let me, let me show you a few. Of course, this is the one that's the best, best known. Um, most people, when witnessing the Mormons, this is one of the first verses they'll memorize. This is great to memorize because it, is, it was one of the verses that I went through with the Jehovah's Witnesses um, last week when they came by my house. Isaiah 43.10. It's one that all Jehovah's Witnesses know. And what's interesting is, since I started with the Mormons, I had the end of the verse more memorized uh, than the beginning of the verse. <laughs> um, you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. So again, remember, this is the court of law. Uh, and my servant whom I have chosen, she may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there is no God for him. There will be none after me. And so, uh, what, you, what you have... Um, Let's, let's, let's make sure we, you know, this, is, this will be helpful for all the people you're dealing with. 
Um, so, for the Mormons, for the Mormons, here's your section. Before me, there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am Yahweh. And I've got my font a little bit too large. There is no Savior besides me. But, um, so there is who is being identified. It says, declares Yahweh. So, Yahweh says, before me, there is no God formed. There will be none after me. So, there's numerous problems that causes for LDS theology because Yahweh is Jesus and he had a God before him. Then again, even if it was Elohim, which is the term for God, um, as the Father, he had a God before him too because uh, he was a man, man that lived on another planet and his God was once a man, his God was once a man on back into eternity. So, there's real problems there. Um, so, whoever is speaking is saying, before me, there was no God form. There will be none after me. This is absolute monotheism. But, keeping that in mind, um, notice what we have before that. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. And again, here is those who are not familiar with it. Yod Hey Wow Hey Naum Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, You are my witnesses, and my servant whom I have chosen, we won't get into that today, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Okay, here is the section of Isaiah 43:10 that is extremely important for Jehovah's Witnesses, because this is the verse they get their name from. You are my witnesses, declares Jehovah in their translation. So here's where Jehovah's Witnesses comes from, this very verse. So when I talked with um, uh, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses last week, and I asked, you know, where does your, where does your name come from? They very quickly said Isaiah 43.10. So they knew. So I pointed out to them, well, it's fascinating because this section here um, over here, in order that you may know and believe and understand, Hatsi Ego Aimi. Ego Aimi. So there's Ego Aimi. And uh, that is Anahu in Hebrew. That you may know and understand that, and here it is, I am He. Now, don't have time to go through this is in the Forgotten Trinity. We've talked about it many, many times before. Um, this phrase is used in the Gospel of John in John 8, 24, John 8, 58, John 13, 19, and John 18, 5 through 6. And in John 18, 5 through 6, when Jesus says, Ego I me, the soldiers fall back upon the ground. In John 8, 58, Prin Abraham Genesai, Ego I me, before Abraham was, I am. Jews pick up stones, stone him. John 8, 24, unless you believe that Ego I me, I am, you will die in your sins. And John 13, 19, in the context of prophecy, Jesus is talking about the betrayal by Judas. He says, I'm, letting you, I'm telling you this in order that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. And he uses the same, I think he uses note and pistuseta. I don't think he uses suneta. But he uses at least two of the three exact same verbs in John 13, 19 that are used right here in the Greek Septuagint. Now, Jesus knew the Old Testament Scriptures, so he's quoting Yahweh 
speaking in Isaiah 43.10 of himself. Of himself. And people skip over it all the time because it, it doesn't necessarily just jump out at you. But here is a place where Jesus is identifying himself as Yahweh using the Ego I Me language on a who in, uh, in Hebrew. And it's also extremely relevant because Isaiah 43.10 just cuts the eternal out of progression in half. In, in Mormonism, there were many, 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 many gods in the past. And there will be many gods in the future. God says, before me, there is no God formed. There will be none after me. Isaiah 43.10, very, very important uh, text. Um, and one that would be very, very, very wise for you uh, to memorize uh, because I think you see what we just did. So uh, now we've, we've skipped over a lot to get to Isaiah 43 because there's um, 41 and 42, you have the material where some of the most astonishing Sarcasm in all scripture is found. I don't have time to go over it today, but I would just highly recommend that you, you read it. Where it, it's the picture. I mean, it, it is the, you know, Rich said I could do this. Oh, you know, that's, it is so much easier to sit here than it is to sit on that thing. To get up on that thing is just so tough. And for some reason, I'm just letting everybody know. One of the cuboid bones in my left, just went wacky on me. So if I all of a sudden just sort of fall over, it's just because something, you know, you get old and stuff just goes places it's not supposed to go. I just, I just got up and walked over there, and it's like, okay, watch this. So anyway, I'll, I'll get back over there, but it's just going to look, look like, well, look how old he's getting. He's going to die soon. Anyways, no. Um, <laughs> what, what are you doing that for? No. You know I don't like that angle. Stop that. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to keep going to this, this camera over here. He can do whatever he wants over there. It doesn't really, really matter much. Um, so, an Isaiah... No. no. I'm, I'm still in charge here. So, um, it, Oh, look at that. There we go. That's much better. Anyway, um, you can zoom in if you want. I don't care. But... Um, in Isaiah 41 and 42, you have this tremendous example of the man who cuts down a tree. And then he gets all fuzzy. Um, and and I thought these cameras were supposed to be all super advanced and stuff like that. So um, anyway, um, cuts down a tree. And with half of it, he builds a fire to cook his food. The other half of it, he fashions into an idol and then bows down and worships the idol as if it had provided him with his food. It is incredible sarcasm. It, it's, it's really what gives rise to the awesome uh, section in the Epistle of Diognetus, mocking idolatry in the Roman Empire many, many, many years later. But it's just a, a universally excellent um, sarcasm of, of idolatry and the foolishness of idolatry. So there's a lot of material in there. There's some I am sayings in there. Uh, catch all of that. You go in Isaiah 43. All these things, these, these texts are rich with these. 
Um, but then there is one that got me kicked out of the visitor's center in the uh, temple in Mesa, which I'm sure no longer exists. They are, are redoing everything. I've redone everything over there. Um, and I'm just going to scroll to it, if you don't mind, because it's easier than um, putting the reference in. Uh, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Okay, you see that? I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things. So there is an absolute claim of creation. Stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Now here's why this is particularly weighty for Mormons. I said earlier, especially if you're talking to a temple Mormon, that is someone who's gone through the endowment ceremony and have, has watched. Because in, in the old temples, they're much bigger than the ones you have today. In the old temples, you would have the garden room and the creation room. And you have, you, so you would, you would go from room to room, and they would, they've painted the walls. And then you'd have actors who would act these things out. They realized it would be a whole lot smoother, faster, easier, more consistent. Eventually what they did is now they project on the walls. And what you watch is a video. You don't have actors anymore. So you don't have to go from place to place to place. It speeds everything up, makes things. They've really streamlined the endowment ceremony in comparison to what it was like uh, back in the late 1800s. And a lot of Mormons back then didn't like when they started playing with it. But anyway, so they have seen right in front of them portrayed Elohim, who is God the Father, sending Jehovah down in company with Michael to organize the earth. So go back to Isaiah 44, 24. Stretching out, this is Yahweh speaking, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Was Yahweh alone? Was Jehovah alone? According to the presentation made in, in the LDS temple? No. He was not alone. In the, he was sent by a superior deity, and he was not sent alone. Michael was with him. Hmm. So why does Yahweh say this? Now, again, your, your Mormon friend has, in all likelihood has never been confronted with this kind of information. I, sadly, the normal answer to something like this, um, I, I went through this one, and I'm sure I had also quoted um, uh, Isaiah 45, um, 5, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rise and the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. So I went through Isaiah 43.10, 44.24, and, and and some others, standing in the now-long-lost Arby's parking lot. Um, 
with a Mormon lady. This was early on in our ministry out there, within the first four or five years. And she listened and was like, "Mm, okay. But I wasn't getting any pushback. Uh, I wasn't getting, well, what about 1 Corinthians 8, God's many and Lord's many and stuff like that, that, which is what you would normally get. And so I sort of felt like I was losing her. So I'm like, so I sort of stopped. Um, and I said, so do you have any response to those things? And she says, well, they're all mistranslated. And I'm like, um, so you read Hebrew? Oh, no, I don't read Hebrew. Have you read anyone that would explain how these, have been, these texts have been mistranslated? No, no, no. Then how do you know they've been mistranslated? Because they disagree with what the church teaches. That, unfortunately, is one, one, the, more, the more normal response from Mormons is to simply cast aside the biblical text uh, because, well, it contradicts what, what the church teaches. Um, that's why biblical sufficiency, sola scriptura, uh, understanding of uh, transmission, translation, these issues more important in talking with uh, Mormons than with Jehovah's Witnesses. Witnesses, there are, there are specific areas that you have to get into, uh, certain topics, but uh, biblical reliability, um, trustworthiness, vitally important in dealing with Mormons because, you know, uh, the eighth article, eighth article of faith the Mormon Church says, we believe the Bible will be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. That means all sorts of different things to different people. Um, who was it? Maybe you'll remember. This way we'll keep Rich on his toes. He's normally back there um, playing games on his phone and stuff like that. Um, um, someone was responding to Brigham Young. And they said something along the lines of, I'm concerned that after, I think it was one of the Pratt brothers, um, I'm concerned that after listening to Brother Brigham's comments, that if you were to come across a Bible laying on the ground, you would not so much as pick it up. Um, and then he, he went on to try to basically say that the Bible is more accurate than we, than we like to say. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a fascinating quote. And... Um, I'm sure someone in the Twitch channel will post the Journal of Discourses article, um, uh, page, page, volume and page number, very, very quickly. Won't you guys? Yeah, right. <laughs> Would actually be cool uh, to have that quote. But um, it is sadly the fact that, that there, has, there is a general um, distrust of the transmission of the text of the Bible amongst Mormons. Not because most of them have ever done any work on the subject, uh, but because it's just part of the uh, culture. And that's also, whenever you are going to introduce other books of Scripture, you're going to have to attack the perspicuity and reliability of the Bible to make room for that. And that's what has taken place. Um, So here you have, besides me, there is no God. Um, I am Yahweh. There is no other. These are... Clear, blatant statements. Now, since I still want to get to another one, there is uh, one other text, and I think this one is particularly useful 
um, in light of the uh, attempts by modern Mormons to use um, literature from the ancient Near East, ancient Near Eastern text, Anet, whenever you see A-N-E-T, it's normally ancient Near Eastern text, to try to say, well, these are, you know, this is how everybody spoke, and so it's not really talking about monotheism and blah, 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 blah. I remember I first ran into this. It, was, it, was, it, just, it just absolutely blew me away. And I had not heard it, ironically, from anybody who was witnessing the Mormons or anything like that. I stumbled across it, I think, in just translation work, if I, if I recall correctly. Um, but in Jeremiah chapter 10, so remember, in, in Jeremiah, you have uh, the, the prophet, and it's in that period of transition where, um, you know, um, Jeremiah was warning, submit to, to Babylon, submit to the 70 years, or worse things are going to happen. And, you know, this all took place 586, 587. And so then there's... Uh, the the people struggling under foreign occupation and control. And so Jeremiah is warning against these gods uh, and against idolatry. Uh, so notice, uh, let, let's back up here again. Okay. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether senseless and foolish. They are a discipline of vanities. It is mere wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of a craftsman in the hands of a goldsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of wise craftsmen. So, hey, this sounds like Isaiah again, doesn't it? It does. If you read in Isaiah 41, 42, that sarcasm. Um, here's Jeremiah doing the exact same thing. Then Jeremiah 10, 10 says, But Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. It is wrath, the earthquakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So here you have the negative. They're simply idols made by men. And then the positive contrast is Yahweh is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So, one of the things you need to notice here is this is not like you have in many ancient Near Eastern texts, where you have their God is the God of their nation, but not necessarily of all nations. What you see in the proclamation of the biblical prophets is that God created all things. The the Babylonian gods came out of creation. They are, they, are, they are subject to creation. But these wild, crazy Israelites say their God actually made all things and hence is the God of all people. What a craziness is that? Um, and so he's the living God, the everlasting king. He's going to judge. The nations cannot endure his indignation. Then verse 11. Then verse 11. Notice... Notice the LSB has this in poetic form. Then beginning of verse 11, it goes back to standard paragraph form for prose. Thus you, and then it goes back to poetry in verse 12. 
Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he, verse 12, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. So, sounds very much like Isaiah. Very, very much like Isaiah. Except for verse 11. And that's because though this looks just like Hebrew, because we're using the same font, verse 11 isn't in Hebrew. Verse 11 is in Aramaic. So when it says, Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. That is, that is God, through his prophet, giving to his people in the language of their oppressors, Aramaic, the very words that they are to say to those inviting them to the worship of false gods. So you have the positive, he established the world by his own wisdom, by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens, he's the only true God, he is the king of all the earth. But then what you are to say to the idolaters is, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Why is this important? Because Mormonism denies Caracio ex nihilo. In fact, Mormonism says that God, the gods, whichever god you're talking about, do not have the ability to create. Matter is eternal in Mormon, Mormon theology. And God has become God by obedience to gospel rules and principles. Uh, I mentioned to you the uh, presentation I did up in Alaska on the subject of Mormonism. And um, at the beginning of that presentation, at least I hope that that presentation that is out there has this. We should have looked it up to double-check this. I should have looked it up to double-check this. Um, at the beginning, I go through uh, a preparatory manual published by the LDS Church for their own people, preparatory to, to being sealed for time and eternity in the temple, eternal marriage ceremony. And in that discussion right at the beginning of that manual, you have it very plainly laid out the LDS doctrine of God, and that God became God by obedience to gospel ordinances and principles, which means gospel ordinances and principles, matter, priesthood, these all, all these things pre-existed God. The God of this planet. Because there are an unlimited number of God. And God himself is not eternal. And so, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and under the heavens. The Mormon God did not make the heavens and the earth. He organized them. He didn't create them. He didn't bring them into existence. And yet the constant drumbeat of the prophets is to contrast the false gods of people with the true God in this very fashion. It's a constant drumbeat. And so no matter how hard Mormonism tries, let, let, me, let me say something that some of you may have not heard me say before. Oh, you were over there, huh? Who cares? Um, you, I'm going to say something that maybe you've not heard me say before, and it might catch your attention. 
Islam is considerably closer to biblical Christianity than Mormonism ever could be. That normally gets everyone's attention. The Mormon next door? The guy with the, the Bibles and, you know, flies the American flag and, and is, you know, has a nice family and takes care of his yard? And what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Well, simple. The most basic definitional element of a religious belief is whether it's monotheistic or not. Christianity is monotheistic, despite what the Muslims might think. And Islam is monotheistic. It's Unitarian monotheistic. We're Trinitarian monotheistic, but we only believe there's only one God who created all things and who has eternally been God. And we share that with the Muslims. The Mormons deny that fundamentally, foundationally. Elohim organized this planet, but this, the materialist planet preexisted and was not brought into existence by Elohim because Elohim himself had to live on a planet to become a god. As did the god before him, and the god before him, and the god before him, back into eternity. Now, of course, that doesn't work. If you have an increasing number of gods today, go backwards into eternity, eventually you've got to get to the first god. And Mormonism has never come up with an answer for this. They can't, because it's irrational. Polytheism is an irrational system. So here, I, I think Jeremiah 10, 11, of, of all the texts of Scripture, is so directly aimed right at Mormonism. And it's just fascinating to me that God gave his people these words in the language of the people inviting them to idolatry. Thus you shall say to them, here's, we're going to hand you, you just read it to them. Okay? The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And that's a message that we need to be bringing to the Mormon people. Now, I, I promised you last time um, that, you know, there are, if you go to, um, there it is, if you go to, I'm going to go ahead and leave that there. Um, the LDS scriptures. Well, let me back up. If you, if you go to Letters to a Mormon Elder, I provide lots of arguments against the prophethood of Joseph Smith. False prophecies and Section 114 of the Doctrine and Covenants uh, was, could never have taken place, and it's, a, it's clear evidence that Joseph Smith did not have access to knowledge of future events and you know, uh, all this, this kind of stuff. And so there's... But the, the reality is you can go round and round and round and round because if someone wants to make Joseph Smith a prophet... All I got to do is keep lowering the bar <laughs> for what a prophet is. And, and that seems to be the, the, the tendency of people today. But I think, and, and you know, archaeology in the Book of Mormon, man, that's a... That's, what the Book of Mormon says was going on in Mesoamerica at the time that we know it was going on in Mesoamerica, no connection whatsoever. Um, Yada, if, if you're really interested in stuff like this, go track down. I, I assume we have it, because I know we still have the tape. Uh, I assume we have it on Sermon Audio. Uh, the KTKK radio program where I... were You, you were up there for that one. Um, <laughs> when I think back on it, Man, we were just walking in the lion's den and just going, hey, this is fun. Hey, this is cool. Um, 
Wow. We, we did a radio program that was at least two hours long where we, I, we were in studio. You were sitting out. I think you were sitting outside because that was a small studio. Tiny little studio. Tiny little Martin studio. Yes, yes. So that, was though, it was. It was terrible. Martin Tanner, an LDS attorney, I believe he's been disbarred, but an LDS attorney uh, was the host. I've debated him. You can, you can, that we debated the University of Utah. That is on YouTube. Um, so Martin Tanner was the host. And then Drs. Peterson and Hamblin from, at the time it was called Farms, Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. That's gone. It's been replaced by who knows what now. Um, and I don't think they're associated with it anymore. Um, so there were two BYU professors and a Mormon attorney and me in a tiny little uh, studio taking live calls in Salt Lake City. Okay, you can't be in more of a minority position than, than, than we were that night. I'll never forget, um, I brought up the fact that in the Book of Mormon, um, the, uh, the Lamanites and the Nephites have these great battles with swords and chariots and bows and arrows and all the rest of this stuff. And now that stuff existed in Mesoamerica. Um, you know, the, the monetary system is completely different. They have gold, coins of gold and silver in the Book of Mormon. Gold and silver is so plentiful they didn't care about it. Jade and cocoa beans was, was what was precious in, in amongst those people. But the amazing thing was, before I got up there, I had read an article by Hamblin. And the Book of Mormon talks about people drawing their swords from their sheaths. Now, if you've ever, ah, I should have, I should have, should have grabbed one of the sword. I've got my, I've got my Maximus sword in the other, the other room. I should have grabbed it. I wasn't even thinking about doing this, so that's that's why. But you know, in the other studio behind me, I've got those two swords. One is unsheathed; it's the claymore, and then I've got the Maximus sword from movie Gladiator from wow, twenty-one years, twenty-three, two years ago now. Yikes! Anyway, and if you if you have a sword in a sheath. Okay, you have to be able to pull it out, which means there, that has to be a smooth sword, has to be smooth sheath. Um, and Dr. Hamblin, I think it was him, I, it could have been Pierce, it was one of the two of them that I was talking to. They had actually, in light of the fact that we don't have any swords in this time period in Mesoamerica, had suggested that what was being referred to was a war club with obsidian, sharp, sharp shards of obsidian rock embedded in the war club, because we have found those. So if you, if you think of a wooden club that someone has pressed sharp shards of rock into, I wouldn't want to get hit by it. But that's not a sword. And you can't put it in a sheath. And if you try to draw it out of something, it's going to catch on everything. And, it, and the Book of Mormon even talks about the sun glinting off the blades. I mean, this is clearly Joseph Smith thinking about the Romans and all that kind of stuff. But that didn't exist in Mesoamerica uh, during the time period where the Book of Mormon says that it did. So you can go back and you can listen. You can listen to these intelligent men literally trying to defend the idea 
that pulling a short sword from the sheath and, and scalping somebody. Try scalping somebody with a war club. Oh, oh. Yeah, that's blunt force trauma. That's, that's not even close. But you go listen. Uh, they'll try to they'll try to defend it. So yeah, there's there's all sorts of stuff like that. And I'm actually starting to run into Mormons, shockingly, who go, oh yeah, yeah, that's uh, the, the Book of Mormon didn't happen historically. It's it's all meant to be a parable. Joseph Smith didn't believe that. And if you're one of those Mormons who think that, go to the documentary history of the church and look up Zelf, the white Lamanite. Just look, Zelf is a, that's a pretty easy word. That's a pretty easy name to remember. Look it up for yourself and you'll see. Joseph Smith did not believe what he was saying was simply a parable. He was presenting this as actual history. But having said all of that, All right. I told you about this little track. Um, what? Mormonr.org actually talks about Zelf and Lamanite. Mormon, what's that? Mormonr. What's that? Mormonism research? It's actually, I put in Zelf. And, and it, it pops up there it's, as an ad that says that. Zelf and Lamanite. Who's Zelf? There you go. So, yeah, I'm not making this stuff up. Zelf, it's on Wikipedia. Yep. Wikipedia has a Wikipedia page for Zelf. <laughs> Little did Joseph Smith know. Look up Zelf the White Lamanite, folks. Just, just trust me. Um, you, it, look, if you're listening to this and you, you're going to be meeting with the rest of your family for dinner tonight, just think how fascinating your conversation could be tonight when you introduce everyone in your family to Zelf the White Lamanite. Let me just read some the introduction to Men is Not God. In 1835, Michael H. Chandler, man, I wish I had my glasses, and Michael H. Chandler arrived in Kirtland, Ohio. In his horse-drawn wagon, he carried four Egyptian mummies. Along with the mummies were included displays of the papyri rolls found on the mummies themselves. Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, was fascinated by Chandler's exhibits, so much so that his fledgling church purchased the entire display from Chandler for a large sum of money, $2,400. Now, let me tell you something, kids. Um, $2,400 doesn't sound like much today because we have so debased our currency, but in 1835, $2,400 was a king's ransom that, you know, when you could buy a suit, you know, for two bucks, uh, 2,400 bucks was, was money. Joseph Smith said, quote, soon after this, some of the saints at Kirtland purchased the mummies and papyrus and with W.W. Feltz and Oliver Cowdery's scribes. I commenced the translation of some of the characters or hieroglyph, hieroglyphics, and much to our joy found that one of the rolls contained the writings of Abraham, another the writings of Joseph of Egypt, etc. That's from the Documentary History of Church, Volume 2, page 236. It should be remembered that this time the study of Egyptian was on a scholarly level in its infancy. Smith was claimed to be able to translate what was, for all practical purposes, an unknown language. Of course, he had claimed the same ability in translating the Book of Mormon, which was said to have been written in Reformed Egyptian. That Smith was indeed claiming to translate in the normal sense of the term can be seen from his own words. Quote, The remainder of this month, I was continuously engaged in translating an alphabet to the Book of Abraham and arranging a grammar of the Egyptian language as practiced by the ancients. 
Documentary of the Church, Volume 2, page 238. Over the next nine years, Smith continued to work on his translation of the Book of Abraham. The work was included in the Pearl Great Price when it was accepted as Scripture in 1880. Okay? Now, um, the Book of Abraham is weird even to Mormons. Okay? The Pearl Great Price is weird even to Mormons in general. Once again, remember, this is called a quad because it's King James Version of the Bible, Book of Mormon, Dr. Cummings, Pearl Great Price. This is the triple, which is just the Book of Mormon, Dr. Cummings, Pearl Great Price. So Pearl Great Price is at the end, toward the back. And if they've put an index in there, then it's not going to be all the way toward the back. But um, you'll find the Book of Moses in there. And then you find the Book of Abraham on page 28. Uh, starts on page 28 of the current edition of uh, things. If you would like, you can go find my cursor here to, here it is, Church Jesus Christ, churchofjesuschrist.org slash study slash scriptures slash PGP, if you want to go all the way. Um, find the program price. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, but this way you can verify this from the LDS source itself. The Book of Abraham... Man, it is much easier to sit on this. <laughs> the Book of Abraham is the only book in the LDS scriptures with pictures. They're not pictures. They're called facsimiles. Uh, facsimile number one... Um, on page 28 of the current printed edition, um, shows the angel of the Lord, Abraham, fastened upon, upon the altar, the idolatrous priest of Elkanah attempting to offer up Abraham as a sacrifice, and this is all found in the pages of the book of Abraham. And then you go through a little bit farther, and you find what's on the screen right now. Facsimile number two, and then there is a third facsimile that is included at the end of um, the Book of Abraham. I only have facsimile number two up. You can find all of these again uh, if you just go to lds.org and click on scriptures, go to Prograde Price. You can look at these things for yourself, uh, so on and so forth. I want to look primarily at facsimile number two. Because what this is, now, let me, let me back, back the truck up here. Um, for many, many, many years, the LDS Church believed that the original papyri that Joseph Smith bought from Michael Chandler had been lost in the Chicago fire. It had been burned, destroyed. The 1960s, the papyri were found. They weren't destroyed in the Chicago fire. We can tell that these are the papyri that Joseph Smith used. Because we have drawings, uh, we have the facsimiles, and we can compare them. And we have them. And if you want to see what all of them look... In fact, you don't have to trust my word for it. I showed these to you last time. In 1985, um, Charles M. Larson, Institute for Religious Research, 
published by his own hand upon papyrus. And here are, there's, there's the uh, Book of Abraham papyrus scroll, uh, the Book of Joseph papyrus scroll. So, um, and you go, well, that's not an LDS source. Okay. Robert K. Rittner, the Joseph Smith Egyptian Papyri, a complete edition with translation and everything else provided to you. This is published by Signature Books, which is LDS. Salt Lake City, 2013. John Gee, uh, a Mormon scholar proficient in Egyptology, was thrown into trying to find an explanation for this mess. And his answers have evolved over the time over time but uh you have john gee a guide to the joseph smith papyri this is uh published by farms 2000 this is 15 years after um what you have in larson and then later john gee an introduction to the book of abraham uh this one is 2017 and all you have to do is look at the, um, it's interesting, they don't provide nearly as good uh, pictures, uh, color pictures as Larson did long, long ago. But if you look at them, yeah, these, they're the same ones. So they, the, the LDS churches had to admit that what, we had, what, what was discovered in the 1960s is what Joseph Smith was using. And they've even found his Egyptian alphabet and grammar. Now, we're going to look at this as specifically in just a moment, but let me just summarize things for you. When you look at Joseph Smith attempting to copy material from the papyri, he doesn't know what he's reading. He's never seen Egyptian before, which means he didn't have any reformed Egyptian plates either. Um, and he will write a, a small symbol and then have a paragraph of what it means. So the symbol might mean the, and the word the may appear in his translation, but it goes along with like 76 other proper English nouns and verbs and things like that. He had no idea. He never got anything right. He had no idea what he was looking at. He was looking at what's called the, the portions from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. There's a breathing permit. These were things that would be wrapped under a mummy's hands that were meant to help them in the afterlife, when, of course, they didn't. Um, and so these facsimiles are all well-known from this time period. They do not go back to the period of Abraham. Uh, it was completely wrong as to the age of these documents. He plainly is saying these were written by Abraham. That would make them the oldest written documents in human history. No, they're first century. They're about first century. And how did they get to Ohio? Because the Brits stole everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, the, the, the British stole everything from uh, Egypt. And they were a curiosity. Remember, you don't, have, you don't have ESPN back then, you know? So when a traveling showman comes through, they can make some money. Because, man, you'll, you'll, throw, you'll throw a few pennies in to get to see stuff that you've never seen anyplace else before. Um, and so uh, the, the reality is... Uh, the book of Abraham shows the beginning of Joseph Smith's development of polytheism. He wasn't a polytheist in 1830 with the Book of Mormon. 
But by the time you get into the book of Abraham, it is now amazingly starting to substantiate his new changes, which he was getting criticized for by people in church, his new changes in theology in adopting a view of polytheism. And so uh, what we need to understand is that the, he provides an explanation. There's an explanation. In fact, um, yeah, see, there's the explanation. It's, it's a part of the LDS scriptures. All right, so this explanation is provided by Joseph Smith himself. All right, so let's look at what this, here, here is, um, what this actually is, is called a hypocephalus. A hypocephalus. It was placed under the head, and it represents various aspects of Egyptian religion, purely pagan. And it is meant to uh, guide the person uh, in the afterlife. So let me read from the explanation. And let's go ahead and uh, let me read from the explanation. So, um, figure number one, right here, there's figure number one. And we'll move this out of the way. There's figure number one. Uh, Kolob, signifying the first creation nearest to the celestial or the residence of God. Now, you need to understand. Um, the book of Abraham tells us where God lives, because God has a body of flesh and bones, tangible as any man. He lives on um, a planet that circles a star named Kolob. Okay, so here's representation of Kolob that comes from the book of Abraham. And I've already told you before, remember Balsar Galactica, Kobol, Kolob, it was all written by Mormons. Okay, true, just look it up yourself. So here's, uh, this, is, this represents Kolob, the first creation, nearest the celestial, or the residence of God, first in government, last pertaining to the measurement of time. The measurement according to celestial time, which celestial time signifies one day as a cubit. One day in Kolob is equal to a thousand years according to the measurements of this earth, which is called by the Egyptians Jaho'eh. Yeah. Um, figure number two, that's uh, right here. Figure number two stands next to Kolob, called by the Egyptians Oliblish, which is the next grand governing creation near the celestial or the place where God resides, holding the key of power also pertaining to other planets, as revealed from God to Abraham, as he offered sacrifice upon an altar which he had built unto the Lord. Uh, figure three, a well-known figure in Egyptian mythology, by the way. Figure number three is made to represent God sitting upon his throne, clothed with power and authority, with a crown of eternal light upon his head, representing also the grand keywords of the holy priesthood, as revealed to Adam in the Garden of Eden, and also to Seth, Noah, Melchizedek, Abraham, and to all whom the priesthood was revealed. Now, you can go into Gi, you can go, and I provide some of these uh, in uh, uh, Men is Not God, I provide what Mormon Egyptologists uh, say, some of these uh, are about, but we want to focus on this section right here. Unfortunately, that section is upside down from our perspective. 
So what I will do is I will uh, leave uh, this particular. Thank you. <laughs> I suppose it would be good to take that away too now. And I have uh, saved that graphic and flipped upside down for you so that we can see what it looks like. Where's that? Come on. There we go. All right. So this is figure seven. You can see that seven's now upside down. But this is figure seven. Here's what Joseph Smith says. Represents God sitting upon his throne, revealing through the heavens the grand keywords of the priesthood, as also the sign of the Holy Ghost unto Abraham in the form of a dove. So here is the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove. Here's God sitting upon his throne, and he's revealing through the heavens the grand keywords of the priesthood. Okay, this is current edition of the Pearl Great Price. Right here. You can go down to the LDS bookstore, go online. It's all there. Uh, now, we've already mentioned what the hypocephalus is. Uh, many of these hypocephali have been found all around Egypt. Um, one of the many pagan gods pictured in this hypocephalus is shown above as it appears in the current edition of the LDS, LDS scriptures. Egyptologists tell us that this, change color here. this is the god Min. M-I-N. Min. And Min is an ithophallic god. Yes. He has an erection. I'm just showing you the LDS scriptures. Um, that is, he's sexually, he is a sexually aroused male deity. Oh, man, that might mean that this has something to do with cisgenderism. <laughs> Maybe that's why they'll get rid of it. Min um, uh, is the god of the procreative forces of nature. Joseph Smith told us the Egyptian god Min was, in point of fact, the one true god. Revealing to the heavens the grand keywords of the priesthood. And what is men doing? Joseph tells us he is revealing the grand keywords of the priesthood with the sign of the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove before him. So that would be that right there. In reality, he is holding up the divine flail in one hand and is being approached by the figure Joseph Smith identifies the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove. In point of fact, Joseph's hypocephalus was damaged at the border so that only the head of the, quote, dove was visible. So Joseph had to restore the picture. Did he do so correctly? No, he did not. The figure, we provide the picture in the track of a, from an undamaged hypocephalus. Um, this is from Leyden AMS 62. The being that is approaching men is not the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove. It is yet another ithophallic figure, specifically a serpent, probably the Egyptian god Nehebka, Presenting to men the widget eye, the symbol of good gifts, which is what you have right there. Okay. Um, so, Dr. Hugh Nibley, 
upon whom it fell initially to try to defend the book of Abraham when the papyri first appeared. Hugh Nibley said, as the supreme sex symbol of gods and men, men behaves with shocking promiscuity, which is hardly relieved by its ritual nature. His sacred plants were aphrodisiacal, and he is everywhere represented as, as indulging in incestuous relationships with those of his immediate family. He had the most numerous and varied religious entourage of all the gods, consisting mostly of his huge harem. The hymns, or rather chanting, of his worshippers were accompanied with lewd dancing and carousing to the exciting stimulus of a band of sistrum-shaking damsels. That's the true God. According to Joseph Smith. Now, you can see why um, there have been a lot of people, a lot of people who have left the LDS Church when they found out what the book of Abraham, Abraham was actually all about. Because this, this is just one aspect of it. Error after error after error after, which is what you would expect. What would you expect of someone who never went past grade school in upstate New York looking at Egyptian papyri while he thinks he's a prophet? And he's also evolving the theology of his church. And he's already claimed to be able to translate Reformed Egyptian, which is how he got his holy book in the first place. This is the kind of absolute blundering that you would expect in that situation. And here it is. How do Mormons tell you over and over, I've prayed, I've gotten a testimony about the Book of Mormon. How does someone who can't translate a few paragraphs of Egyptian get 530 pages of the Book of Mormon right? He claimed the same authority, right? Many people who have dug into this story, sadly, what happens is they just, they leave religion. They're the religiously abused, the burned. And that's what happens when you find out that your religion's false without finding out what's true at the same time. That's why... And man, I don't know how many times I've said this now over 40 years. But I would rather have five people with me in Salt Lake City that can, that can clearly define and delineate the Christian gospel, the Christian message, than 50 people that can rip and shred Joseph Smith but have nothing positive to give in its place. Because that's what happens. When people find out the truth, they find out men is not God. Um, they're not necessarily going to start going out immediately and going, well, I, I need to find the true God, and so I'm going to, I'm going to go you know, talk to the Christian churches and stuff like that. No, they... When, when Jason Wallace started telling me years ago about how Salt Lake City and the whole Salt Lake Valley was this stinking mass of every kind of religious quackery you could ever think of. I mean, New Age wackoism and um, it's all up there. They've got a little bit of everything. Why? Um, once you leave Mormonism, uh, you know, you, you can go out, you can end up landing anywhere. And they do. And they do. So the book of Abraham, to me, is just so clear because 
as the tract explains, uh, the Rosetta Stone had been found, but it took, took a while for scholars to figure out how to use it to, to crack the, the code and learn to read the language, which can be read completely now. And so Joseph Smith thought he was safe. No one could read this language anyway. So that was the foundation stone of his uh, proclaimed prophethood. No one's going to find the golden tablets because there weren't any. Okay, he made all that up. But here's where he made his mistake. Is he actually had papyri and he let people see them. And he wrote down his Egyptian alphabet and grammar, which was never right about anything. And then to have the papyri disappear, ah, well, that was convenient because while they were absent, there were lots of people who encountered the LDS scriptures, they encountered the Pearl Great Price, and once we started understanding Egyptian, there are a lot of people outside of Utah going, that's not what that is. That's not even close. We know what that is now. We have all sorts of examples of that, but they hadn't found the papyri yet. And so they were able to dodge and, well, you know, we don't know what he originally had, da 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 But then when the actual papyri themselves were found, and you can just tell that, that yes, they are. That this is what he used. Uh-oh, now what do you do? Now you have the perfect, exa- perfect opportunity of testing Joseph Smith, and he fails spectacularly. Now, you didn't need the Book of Abraham to know that. He failed that spectacularly when, when he said, right toward the end of his life, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I'll refute the idea and take away the veil so that you might see. With that quotation from King Follett Funeral Discourse, he separated his followers from Christianity forever. That's all it took. That's all it would have taken. But wow, there's a lot of evidence that demonstrates just how far off Joseph Smith was. Was never a prophet, and there's no reason for you to believe anything that he or his successors taught. Uh, because it has all been a lie from the start. From the start. But the Mormon people need people to tell them those things. And uh, that's why we've been doing this for as many years as we've been doing this. So hopefully that's helpful to you. Hopefully not too shocking to you. Hey, they actually put out a, an edition of the Prograde Price where they um, neutered men <laughs> back in the 80s. Because they, even they knew what it was. How Smith couldn't have seen it, I don't know. But they, they did neuter him for a while, but then they, they denutered him later on. Uh, when people started asking questions, because that just pointed, that just made it all the more obvious. So there you go. There you go. Min is not God. Again, the PDF for this is on aomin.org, and hopefully you'll track that down and be able to utilize that. That'll be helpful to you. All right. So tomorrow, Radio Free Geneva. Radio Free Geneva, responding to Calvinism, a biblical and theological critique, looking once again. At an issue we have delved into, I will try. Here's what I'll try to do. I will try to um, include the link to that. Because when I found it, I looked up David Allen and it pulled up. Uh, I think we took it out of a longer dividing line and made it its own separate thing. So I'll try to include the link to that. If you have the time to listen to that, man, then you're going to find tomorrow to be, you'll be able to really... You're going to be up to speed big time. 
and hopefully it'll be all, all the more useful to you. And then we will talk about uh, Andy Stanley on Thursday um, on the program. So you get three dividing lines heading your way uh, this week. Um, I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that next week because I've got a lot of prep to be doing for the trip and uh, I've got debates coming up and stuff like that. And man, at my age, I just don't go as fast as I used to. <laughs> this is all there is to it. So anyway, so we will see you tomorrow for Radio Free Geneva. See you next time. God bless.